Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I am very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. My conversation today is with Ian Ross, the founder of Samara Road. Samara Road is one of these companies that is pretty amazing. They have offices in some awesome markets throughout the country, headquartered in New York, second headquarters in Nashville with regional offices around. They do micro neighborhoods, mixed use placemaking, multifamily, hospitality, retail, office, and they even have a triple net program. We talk about how Ian builds teams, how he hires people, how he cultivates a culture throughout the country, how he brings in new people into the company, what a good deal is, what a bad deal is, how he builds and thinks about these micro neighborhoods, how he creates a placemaking experience, and what components go into a successful micro neighborhood. We also talk about his foray into hospitality, his best deal, and a hotel travel policy that I love, which is that his team never stays in the same hotel in a new city, so they can always learn a new neighborhood, see a new thing. It's a great policy. Please enjoy my conversation today with Ian Ross. So the entrepreneurial journey is something that is really inspiring to me. And I'm curious to know about 
the early part of your career and how that led into you becoming an entrepreneur and starting your own company and what you learned during your process of working for other people? Sure. Yeah. Great question. I mean, I, I think I've always kind of had an entrepreneurial spirit since I was like a young kid, whether it was selling lemonade on the corner. I used to sell lemonade on the corner. I'd bring my like kid brother and dog out to sit in front of the lemonade stand just so like people would ooh and ah and like think it was cute and I could, you know, sell them five dollar cups of lemonade or selling like sodas on the beach or I sold this Raven's Revenge thing at at, uh, at summer camp. I sold a, a spring break passes in college. I promoted clubs. I you know, always kind of had an entrepreneurial itch. You know, when I started my career in the corporate finance world, I, I started at Morgan Stanley working on the CMBS desk doing origination securitization. And, you know, I, I, I loved kind of corporate finance and, and understanding the quantitative side of financial products. But what I, what I very early on got excited about with real estate was the tangibility of the asset class, the ability to you know, roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty and really, you know, effectuate change and, and un understand the product that you were investing in and control the product that you were investing in, in a physical domain that really doesn't exist in a lot of other asset classes. So, you know, early on, great experience at Morgan Stanley, working on their CMBS origination securitization desk in the in the large loan business. Moved over to Jefferies and did investment banking there, and then had a really exciting opportunity early in my career to help start Triangle Capital, which was effectively functioning as a real estate investment vehicle for a family office. And you know, had a tremendous experience there, helping grow a team from three folks in a Bloomberg effectively in a broom closet to a really institutional player. We did about a billion dollars of acquisitions on the QSIP side, about a billion dollars of acquisitions on the, the loan side or loan or REO side, learned how to buy real estate of all asset classes and all geographies across the country, learned how to build a team and you know, had the opportunity to do that effectively for somebody else as one of their lead players, building a unit there, and then decided it made sense to try and create that on my own. And here we are. What are some of the biggest things you learned on someone else's dime while working under that umbrella that you've taken with you with your own capital? Yeah, you know, I think first off, how to price and understand risk, how to protect the downside, and, and how to really understand that downside. Uh, creating an asymmetric risk profile, minimizing your downside risk and maximizing uh, your opportunity for an outsized upside return. I think, you know, whether it was my experience out of the GFC buying distressed notes and REO assets, whether it was my experience on the debt side originally, you know, I was always kind of downside focused as, you know, a debt investor at, at heart. But what else did I learn? I, I think early on, I learned that I could really understand a lot of diverse markets around the country. And, you know, whether it was growing up in LA or, Having spent you know a ton of time in New York, understanding these very complex real estate markets, I found it less challenging than expected to wrap my head around, uh, particularly second tier markets, and you know had the opportunity uh, with Triangle to invest in you know fifty some odd markets around the U.S. and and really uh, garner an understanding of the who, what, where, when, why fundamentals of those markets and how people live, work, and play and shop and and interact with the physical domain in those markets and what drives supply and demand. And it just gave me a level of comfort to 
to come into a new market and underwrite it in an effective manner. You know, I think a lot of people in this business fear being non-local and think that the local operator has an edge. But if you, if you really understand the core principles of supply and demand and why people want to use space in a certain manner in, in that respective market, you can understand your own value proposition, your own pricing, and you can you know, put yourself in a, in a pretty favorable spot. So you know, we like to say at Samara Road, know thy markets. And I, I think I, I learned how to learn and know those markets at, you know, at an early phase of my career. Do you think that more local focused real estate GPs or operators tend to miss some of the big macro signs that maybe give you a competitive advantage when you think about risk and how to price the risk and what the upside could be? A- absolutely. You know, I think there's two sides to that. On one hand, local operators you know, have a, a deep-rooted understanding of the market from a block-to-block, building-to-building perspective. They can hometown you in terms of their relationships with tenants, you know, particularly in the office market. They're there constantly when they see it. On the flip side of that, you know, as a as a more national operator that's got a, a bigger geographic footprint, you know, we can have relationships with tenant from a market to market basis. We can see trends before they move to another market. We can have kind of a macro view of you know how things are behaving in a particular space, and we can apply one to the other. You know, on the former, I think what our firm has taken a lot of pride in doing is you know, we say act like a local. Uh, don't let like you know. We don't let a local operator have an edge on us. And we do that, you know, really three ways. First and foremost, understanding on our way in, deeply understanding the market fundamentals and market behavior. Two, we read local news at Samara Road like you wouldn't believe. You know, I personally follow uh, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, India, Nashville news as if I live in those markets every single day. And folks on our team are responsible for covering local uh, happenings across all of our markets. So we have a, it's not just a day one understanding of a market, it's it's a progressive understanding of what's happening in the market as if you were a local. And then lastly, you know, we've opened seven offices around the country outside of our HQ in, in, in Nashville and New York. Uh, we have offices in Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Austin, Indianapolis, and Tampa. And that's largely to have you know, boots on the ground, really understanding you know, the constant changing dynamics in those respective markets, and having those like organic collisions that you know happen in the real estate world when you're not working, does that make sense? Like you, you only really understand a market when you're like you know out with your kids on a Saturday grabbing brunch, and like those are fundamentals that you learn that you can't learn like you know on a Tuesday work trip. Going back to you asked another question, Jake, earlier with regards to what I learned, you know, in my prior experiences, I'd also say the challenge of building or helping build a firm, you know, coming out of the GFC, you know, and taking nothing and, and, and building into something really substantial really proved to me that that was possible. And it gave me like, a, you know, I'd say I, I had a lot less fear of you know, what was possible in the space, what I was capable of and what could be built if you put your mind to it. You know, we have a lot of sayings at Samara Road, but one we take a lot of pride in is is nothing is hard. You know, listen, there are there are certainly things in this world that are really challenging, like brain surgery. I'm not gonna pretend to figure that out tomorrow. 
But in our space in real estate, you know, particularly because it is a physical domain, it's tangible, we can figure out any asset class. You just have to ask the right people, the right questions, uh, be willing to learn, know what you don't know, and constantly challenge yourself and kind of build that encyclopedia in your mind. And you know, we can figure out how to understand businesses that are tangential, uh, whether it's you know, industrial one day or retail the other, or you know, over the last couple of years, taking a deep dive into hospitality. There are nuances that we have to pick up on and get up to speed on. But you know, if, you, if you challenge yourself, you know, I think getting there is, isn't as hard as a lot of people think. If I can unpack one other thing there, you know, development is the perfect example of something that we kind of like just challenged ourselves and said, hey, nothing, nothing is hard. We can figure this out. Uh, we spent, you know, we had a handful of development sites, four specifically, one in Pittsburgh, two in Nashville, one in uh, DC, and one in, I think that was it. We had a handful of, of development sites in Nashville, and Pittsburgh, and DC, and we spent a lot of time exploring JV relationships and whether we should partner with a group to co-GP and develop something together. Why? Well, you know, I'd heard my whole career, a lot of value add or investment firms or debt shops say, we don't develop, right? You know, I'm sure you've heard that's a classic line. People always say development's just one thing we don't do. And I think a lot of people just take that at face value and accept it. We never really take things at face value. We always kind of dig in and ask the question. And we start kind of trying to unpack that. You know, why not develop? What is that incremental risk? What is that, that incremental understanding or skill set that needs to be had. And, you know, we spend a lot of time with these JV partners on the development side and you, you sit across the table from them and you're like, can we just figure out how to do what you do? Not ourselves, but can we augment our team and bring in a, a master of that craft, a subject matter expert to sit alongside us and execute that strategy ourselves? And, and that's just what we did. I mean, on the development side, four years ago, you know, we, we said, hey, sh we should probably internalize this and figure this out. We met with 40, 50 people, different candidates to try and find the right fit, came down to a few. And in the end, you know, things really clicked with Andrew. And Andrew Donchez is, is my partner, oversees our development business. Fast forward four years later, he's built a massive development practice here. He's got 15 people on his team. We have four projects out of the ground across the country and a $2.5 billion pipeline of new projects to come as soon as uh, the Fed fixes our, our little interest rate situation. But you know, I think that's an example of just you know, tangentially understanding a new space, bringing in the right people, and building that capacity internally. And we've done that you know, really across the board here at Samara Road. One of the things that you keep saying is people. And at Dove Hill, my goal for 2024 is to enter a new asset class. And I want to just go even deeper. So taking your expansion into development, clearly you moved first with a person, but bring me back to like some of those initial conversations, whether it's development or another asset class, when you're evaluating to go into that, how you think about it and how you then develop a plan and what those kind of early steps are. Does it start with one project? Do you have to kind of own an adjacent site to get comfortable about it. What are some of those early decisions that you're making before you break in? Yeah, so, so first off, I would say it starts with a thesis, an idea, a parcel, a development site. It starts with something that we can do. We have the, the strategy to do. We have the idea to do, but maybe we don't 
have the skill set and ability to do with our existing team, but an idea, a thesis, something that we we think might make sense to effectuate. And you know, I, I think the the next step there is then figuring out you know what's the human capital that we need to get this done. What does our team need to look like? And whether it was on you know, there's really been four instances of this you know at our firm on the net lease industrial side on the development side on the debt side and on the placemaking you know micro neighborhood side you know questioning ourselves and saying how can we become best in class in this space who and what do we need to augment our existing team to be as good as it gets in that vertical and in each of those spaces over the course of the last few years we brought in phenomenal talent to, to run those initiatives. When you decided to start Samara Road, did it start with a thesis, like an idea? Did it start with a specific project? And then how did you think about building it? Because you came from a place where there was a lot of capital. It was a family office. You came from institutions. They had capital there. But when you go out and start your own company, you have to be very thoughtful with how you're using, whether it's your capital, maybe you had seed investors. I don't know. But how did you figure out where you wanted to go at the earliest stage of when you were starting Samara Road? Yeah, when I started Samara, I you know I had a strategy. I think it was it was we were still picking up the post GFC pieces. When you think about two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, a ten year fixed rate CMBS loans, those were all hitting the maturity wave around sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. When you hit maturity, obviously, it doesn't necessarily work out that quickly. As we know, with special servicing, it can take a couple of years. So there was a large glut of stuff that was going to be worked out from, say, uh, 16 to 2020. And when I started Somera, I had connectivity into where all of that stuff sat. I had been working in some element of CMBS since the beginning of my career in 2007. So, and I traded CMBS bonds on the debt side. I had bought NPLs and REOs out of CMBS trusts. I understood the, the CCR position, fair market value purchase options, how to work with a special servicer, had deep relationships and you know, IP, if you will, of how that whole world works. So when I started Samara, you know, my, my strategy was really to dig into that maturity wall and try and find some non-performing loan or REO pieces to acquire um, out of that legacy CMBS maturity wall. Uh, was fortunate enough early on in starting the business to get control of about $6 billion of legacy CMBS bonds or control of $6 billion of, of maturing loans, if you will. And control in CMBS 1.0 meant the ability to hire and fire the special servicer to get the fair market value purchase option to get a look on, on the REO assets as they were being sold out of those trusts. So you know, here we were with a you know, young firm, some phenomenal talent, and we had an opportunity to uh, pick distress out of that wall, anything you know, in those vintages that defaulted at maturity. From a capital perspective, I had never raised any money before. And it was my first experience uh, needing to, to raise capital. The first deal was about a $5 million equity check. I put my money where my mouth was. I was a 30-something-year-old young gun. I you know, started calling on investors, uh, people that 
you know, had never invested with me before, but, uh, you know, people that I had some form of relationship with. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm putting half a million bucks in uh, to this deal myself. Would love to have you invest alongside of me. Do you remember that that first time when you're raising money or at the early days when you're raising money, what something you thought was a truth that actually turned out to be completely untrue? Really good question. Yeah, I'd say the one thing that comes to mind is is just, I think I had so much to prove and I might, you know, overcomplicating things and too much information is actually not good. Investors want, oftentimes they're betting on the jockey, right? Not the horse, they're, they're betting on you. They want a really streamlined, easily digestible summary of the situation and uh, they want to understand how they're not going to lose money and how they're going to make money. And I think you know, early on, we went into such deep evolutions of a pitch deck. They were overly complicated, you know, overly verbose, and these really long materials that were probably unnecessary in retrospect. I'll tell you a little bit you know, more about kind of how I thought about raising capital initially. When we would raise capital for a deal, what I realized early on was there were two things new investors had to get comfortable with. They had to get comfortable with, with the deal. And they had to get comfortable with, with me and with the firm and our team. And as we started going into these new markets, you know, one way we fostered relationships with new family offices was bringing in local groups. I realized that you know, we were a, a brand new firm that had a couple transactions under our belt. But if I had a really good value proposition or a really good business plan or arbitrage on a deal in their backyard, it was hard for them to not get comfortable with the deal. And all I had to do was then do what I said what I was going to do, be an honest and thoughtful and intentional operator, sponsor, manager, and they would get comfortable with us. And we do all those things and take a lot of pride in that. And what we realized from that is, you know, day one, they don't know us, maybe not totally comfortable with us, but they're comfortable with the deal. Day two, and so they do the deal, right? Because they, they, they understand the transaction, they take the risk on us. Day two, we bring... we bring them from, let's say, Indianapolis family, and now we're doing a deal in Pittsburgh. Now in Pittsburgh, if you've done right by them, they're comfortable with you, and they might not be comfortable with the deal. But now you've, you've kind of 180 that, and you solved another side of the coin. And that was one way we started harvesting these groups and, and bringing a lot of these family offices with us where we went around the country. Was it intentional to focus on family offices as opposed to big institutional allocators? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think we've seen over the last 10 years a massive disintermediation. You know, listen, from, from a capital standpoint, we, we work with, with all sorts of groups. We've raised about a billion dollars of equity to date. A lot of that has come from a really large family offices that we have tremendous relationships with. A lot of that has come from institutional partners. So we've worked with about a dozen blue chip institutional hedge funds or private equity funds. We've worked with insurance companies. We've really gone kind of across the spectrum. I would say family offices are, are constantly looking for alpha and looking for alternative investments. And I think, you know, as you've seen the amount of wealth created in America at, at the top within these family office institutions, they're often looking for an edge by self-selecting operators rather than going into pooled, non-discretionary real estate funds. You know, real estate, as, as I was saying before, it's, it's, it's a tangible asset class. It's an asset class that people understand or think they understand or like to think they understand. 
and you know it's 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 a product type that people don't necessarily feel they need a fund for exposure and if we can connect the right people with the right deals i think people would rather maintain their discretion and invest directly into transactions so we fostered a lot of relationships with large family offices and smaller institutions around the country we have a good understanding of what they're looking for they're often looking for real estate exposure and looking for it in a non-fund context that's been a lot of what we've done to date and if we can match the right transactions with the right acts from from specific people it's you know it's a win-win for all parties i want to talk about raising funds as well because a couple of my buddies have raised funds and it's hard and Oftentimes it's incredibly expensive and some of them aren't even breaking even until they're getting maybe over $500 million of equity. How have you experienced the fun side versus going deal by deal? And also then take that a step further and talk to me like how you gain credibility on a deal when maybe the seller or the broker knows that you're going to have to go out and raise capital for this deal? How have you mitigated some of that feedback? Sure. I mean, so first off, today we've done about $3 billion in total transaction volume. We've raised and deployed about a billion dollars of equity. Almost all of that with the exception of our net lease vehicle, which is about $150 million of, of equity and about, depending on how you cap it, around $800 million of value has been in a non-fund deal-by-deal context. Uh, our net lease vehicle, because of the thesis being the whole is worth more than some of the parts as a portfolio that was done in a in a single fund. You know, listen, you, you mentioned your friends at the five hundred million dollar level. You know, as they look to scale and create efficiencies in a fund model, and let's talk about that for a second. I generally view, and there are exceptions to this, but I generally view the world in two ways. There are there's sponsors, operators, executors. There's people that you know wake up every day and they create value in real estate. And then there's allocators. There's people that create value by building pool of capital, build pools of capital and allocating those dollars to the first group. I think a lot of people often fall into this trap in the middle where they raise a, you know, let's think about real estate funds as, you know, and play with that for a second. Let's say you raise a $500 million fund. You, know, you got to go deploy, you know, a billion and a half dollars of investable capital, you are doing so in a in a fee construct that's you know not all that substantial on a five hundred million dollar capital base. I guess when you go back to the 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 operators and the fund managers, you know you effectively have two groups of people with two very different incentives. The former is promote incentive; they care about creating dollars, driving profits, and having a piece of those profits. And maybe there's some fee streams as well. On the former, you know, you're really just incentivized to scale and to build a, a, a fund model. And you never really want to lose capital. It's all about being bigger and bigger. And those two things kind of contradict each other. As you get bigger and you want to put out more dollars, you need more of, of the former relationship. You need to be more of an allocator. And I think the tweeners there, when you raise a, a $500 million fund, you know, the fee model off of the asset management fees of a $500 million fund are not all that compelling, especially net of the human capital that you need. So you really are promote focused, but then you're crossed and, you know, it, it doesn't really make all that much sense at that size. So I think, you know, where f- 
fund management starts to become you know, really interesting is when you're in that multi-billion dollar scale. Once you get to that multi-billion dollar scale, you certainly then need to be using operators uh, to help deploy those amounts of capital. And then when I step back and look at those two options and those two worlds, personally, what, what gets me excited every day and what I want to be is I want to get out there and, and you know, be a deal guy. I want to find opportunities to invest and invest capital and create value. I don't necessarily want to just find bigger pools of money to deploy. I do want to talk about, I want to go into kind of neighborhoods because you're in cities like Austin and Nashville that everyone knows that everyone's talking about, but you're also in other city hubs, but you're less focused on the city and more focused on the neighborhood. So maybe you can kind of talk about what makes a neighborhood, what you're looking for when you're going into a neighborhood and how you've identified these cities that may have been, or neighborhoods particularly, that may have been less obvious to a lot of other outsiders whether it's they're based in New York or somewhere else out of that locale. Yeah, you know, from a neighborhood perspective, I think, you know, in Nashville, we focused a lot on the Gulch and on, on Wedgwood, Houston. and in Indianapolis, we focused on the northern side of downtown in Pittsburgh. We're heavily focused on, on the south side off of Carson Street at Southside Works. In Kansas City, we're heavily focused on the West Bottoms. In Austin, we're heavily focused on the, the St. Elmo District on South Congress. I think it largely comes down to building stock. You know, we're really attracted to unique and, and special, historically significant, architecturally significant buildings. And I think that's like kind of the, the zeitgeist in, 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 in America. When you think of, of neighborhoods around the country that are, are interesting or compelling in that construct, you know, I think of places like Williamsburg or like Wynwood or Deep Ellum or I was just in the Pearl District in San Antonio, like these, these, these places that have authenticity and history uh, and a story, unique architecture, something that's, that's different and cool and, and edgy. You think of places like Nulu and Louisville, like every, every city's got one of those neighborhoods. We're often drawn to that history and that authenticity. I think you know we really like leaning into that and building neighborhoods around that. What are the kind of things that you see to know whether there's going to be enough mass to absorb whatever you're building, whether it's an office or a mixed use play or a hotel or multifamily? Is there something that you walk through and you're like, yeah, this is obvious or is it more technical based? We are so micro focused, so case by case focused, right? You know, it's 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 all about supply and demand of that specific product. So, like, we don't paint a broad brush over any. It comes down to basis too, right? Like, you know, there are very few markets that we won't invest in at the right price. Do you want to talk about offices and why you've kind of set up these local offices? It's almost the Trammell Crow model, and I think of a lot of bigger firms and older firms than yours that have this model. It's so unique that you are a young firm and have prioritized this approach of being local but national at the same time. Why was that important to do that? Uh, so we're, we're based in Nashville and in New York, and we have offices in Austin, Kansas City, Indy, Pittsburgh, and Tampa. Those are all markets that we believe in and have active projects in. 
I think it's just really important in this business, particularly with like, you know, large heavy lifts where we're, we're building uh, communities and, and really leaning into those communities to have a local presence and to have boots on the ground, particularly on heavy development or, or heavy construction projects. You know, Nashville was a market we came to early, you know, pretty timely with regards to its growth curve. Uh, we established a presence here. I'm in Nashville today. And we realized that, you know, this was a really compelling place that was growing. And it was a great place to build a HQ2 and, and a, a, you know, a, a, a deep bench for our team, not just to work in Nashville, but to, to work nationally. Our other offices, you know, are all a function of circumstance or, you know, kind of organic in how they happened. Uh, in Indy, we have a half a million square foot redevelopment of an old car manufacturer, manufacturing facility called the Stutz uh, that we've redeveloped into retail and office and we're building apartments and, and more around it. And you know, when you're doing a project of that scale, you really need boots on the ground, you need a team. In Pittsburgh, it's a similar story. You know, we, we took over Southside Works there and completely reconceptualized, redeveloped the asset, uh, converting the movie theater into the, the box office, redoing the, the town square, totally changing the narrative on the retail, redeveloping apartments, building new apartments on the waterfront. So many different projects within one. And when you're doing something, again, that's that comprehensive, you need some boots on the ground. So we hired a local team there. Austin was a function of a market. We, we wanted to really you know, dig our heels in and, and become a more active player in that market. So we started building a nucleus and a team there. And you know, really excited about our first project, our, our first new project that we closed on there a couple of weeks ago. Where else? Uh, in Kansas City, Kansas City is a, a, a wild project. You know, it's a $350 million plus redevelopment of an entire neighborhood uh, called the West Bottoms. You know, think of like effectively buying all of Williamsburg or Dumbo like, uh, like Dave Valentis did and, and trying to uh, build all of the components of a live, work, play, stay, multidimensional neighborhood. And to do that, you need a team. You need real boots on the ground. So we hired there. But you know, everything is is case dependent. It's you know, we don't we don't kind of have a, a master plan here at Samara. We we do what makes sense at any given time. We like to be really thoughtful and, and be nimble and bring on the right people in the right places as needed. How has your thinking around placemaking evolved over the past five years, particularly in the context of the shift of office yeah you know i think i think people want these engaging environments with activation and and amenities and they want them to be authentic and thoughtful and well composed so we spend a ton of time probably too much time on on placemaking and thinking about all of the pieces at our ground plane uh, to create the most interesting and compelling environment on the ground floor so that people want to live, work, stay above that. Our thinking has evolved, you know, from a placemaking perspective, you know, a handful of projects come to mind, Southside Works in Pittsburgh, the Paseo in Nashville, the West Bottoms in Kansas City, the Stutz in Indianapolis. And in, in all of those efforts, you know, we're, we're really trying to create a collaborative, synergistic mix of retailers and public space experiences that, you know, kind of are, you know, as we call it a micro neighborhood, a, a, you know, 
a, a walkable five minute city, if you will, uh, where people can have the vast majority of their needs fulfilled and can have a really enjoyable experience in an efficient manner, you know, in that little micro community. How much of the work component comes into the live, work, play nowadays? And what's changed about your approach with how you're thinking about office and how you're utilizing office spaces in your micro neighborhoods? Yeah, listen, I think work is, is, is really important office use is really important to to create a a high functioning neighborhood you need the daytime population monday through friday nine to five to help support retailers so so they can be healthy just reading uh this morning about essex crossing in new york city where verizon had you know a hundred thousand square foot lease that they just put out to sublease and the retail in in the in the market space beneath it has struggled because they don't have you know 500 worker bees that are there, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five, helping support that. So it is an ecosystem where everything drafts off of each other. The, the retail attracts the office. Uh, the office wants to be there because the retail is there and the retail survives because the workers are there. And the same thing can be said about the multifamily and the hotel components. You know, I'd say the, the office is also important from a shared parking construct. We hate to like overpark our projects, and one way you can create parking efficiency is with your multifamily and office together in the same facility. Like, how are you changing your thinking about office in this environment, though? Like, are you doing less of it? Are the buildings shrinking? Like, what what's happening? Office just has to be super special, right? Commoditized, generic, boring office is is not going to lease anymore being the same as everybody else, or creating a value proposition that's based simply around price is just not going to generate any leasing momentum. You know, I think about office as, as, you know, in terms of how big my moat is. My moat being what sets me apart, uh, what makes our product special. How do we have the smallest comp set possible? How can we be the only thing, whether it's locationally, structurally, Amenity-wise, how can we be the only option? How can we be the most desirable? So, for example, in Indianapolis at the Stutz building, we've done a $75 million comprehensive gut renovation of a historic building to create a a really immaculate and special Class A office building. Uh, We've created an amenity package from fitness to conference spaces to shared workspaces to tenant lounges to make it, you know, check all of the boxes from an amenity perspective. We've worked thoughtfully from a, a parking and, and, and signage perspective to check all of those boxes. And then from a retail placemaking perspective, we added all of the components that you could ever want from an office perspective to, to make it the most desirable. Uh, we brought in a bakery and bagel shop. We brought in a coffee shop. We brought in a all-day cafe that was, you know, largely beloved in, in, in the market. We brought in an event space for, for companies to host you know, large networking events, brought in a taco shop. We brought in a, a yoga studio and really tried to check every single box that you could want upstairs. And you know, lo and behold, we're, we're getting tremendous leasing velocity at the asset despite downtown Indianapolis struggling. But you know, where else? And we also added a bar, a tap room. So you know, where else in Indy 
can you have a high quality, great open floor plate, cool, creative office, be able to you know, go down to the bakery at Amelia's in the morning and go to barista parlor and grab a coffee, come upstairs, go down for lunch at Julieta's Tacos, come back up and work, find a cool place to work outside in, in you know, a, a fun public space, and then you'll go down for beers at the bar at five o'clock. You know, it's, it's hard to replicate that. And by creating such a special and unique space, we've been able to separate ourselves from our peers. You know, the same thing can be said about you know, class A office in New York, right? The best product is leasing extraordinarily well. Commoditized generic product is not seeing any leasing velocity at all. So across our portfolio, we've done everything we can to make our product stand out and be special and unique, uh, to create an environment that's highly desirable, that's activated, that's programmed, that's, you know, from an employer perspective, can help incentivize their employees to come to work. That's a better experience for their employees than being at home. And by doing so, you know, we've created a unique value proposition to those employers, those, those tenants and their employees that you know, makes them want to be in our space more than another space. Hospitality is like the hardest thing and I love it and projects love it and people love going to great hospitality venues, whether it's a hotel, bar, or restaurant. And you've been really thoughtful and actually patient with your projects about kind of layering hospitality in at the right time and not too early. Whereas a lot of people, and I think actually Soho House goes into neighborhoods where they're in some ways the first one there. And you have kind of taken the approach to layer it in after you've already had some momentum, whether that's a hotel or a bar in a mixed use project. What's been your approach with hospitality to date? Yeah, I mean, on the hotel side, it's a, we were just having this debate today with regards to our project in Kansas City at the West Bottoms. You know, I think I, I, I tip my hat to So House for taking a lot of risk and going into neighborhoods early. Uh, for us, when we think of kind of the pieces of the pie, we generally think hotel comes later. And maybe that's just kind of a, a de-risk perspective. But our hotel pieces in these various you know, micro-neighborhood projects is, is usually added at a later point or conceptually added at a later point. With regards to retail and, and F&B and creating amenities that help drive a neighborhood, in those instances, you know, we, work with, we work with partners and, uh, to, 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 to have a shared vision for what's going to come. But that's kind of a chicken or an egg. Those things have to come first to give uh, your office tenants or your apartment tenants a sense of, of, of neighborhood and experience that they know is going to be there. So you know, we just really creatively structure our transactions to make sure that we can create that place or as much of that place that we need first so that the office and, and multifamily and other components above can be successful. I think one thing that, that I didn't mention earlier that, that we spent a lot of time on and, and you know, are really intentional about is crafting that placemaking in a really authentic manner. You know, making sure that we have a mix of tenants that are collaborative and synergistic and not competing with one another. We want them to be really successful. And also making sure that we bring things to the market uh, that people want. And that's a combination of you know, really three things. It's, it's, it's locally praised and appreciated tenants that are already in the market and successful and helping them open a new location or a new concept. And we've worked with Barista Parlor from Nashville, uh, really all across the country, helping uh, Andy Muma expand his vision and you know, bring that, that really phenomenal 
coffee shop operation uh, into these markets or, or with Martha Hoover from Kathy Patichu in Indianapolis, helping her open up a new unit within our Stutz project. Uh, the second thing is, you know, helping startup entrepreneurs realize their dreams and betting on the right people to you know, help create something de novo. Uh, so we worked with Julio Hernandez in Nashville. Julio was a guy I met on Instagram who was selling tacos out of a school bus. And I was like, the tacos were getting a ton of praise and a ton of love. And I called John Reeser, my partner here in Nashville. And I said, we got to talk to this guy. This is awesome. Apparently his tacos are amazing. He's got a ton of momentum behind him and people love him. Let's invest in him. Let's help him build a new thing. And we got to know Julio and we put a team together. We said, hey, let's take Mais de la Vida, which is, again, a taco shop out of a school bus. And let's turn it into something real. And this morning I was you know, over at his space. It's opening in a couple months. It's his first brick and mortar, Mais de la Vida, which will be Nashville's best taco operation. So leaning in number two to these you know local folks and helping empower and enable them uh, to effectuate their vision, which you know creates a lot of value for the neighborhoods that we're trying to craft. And then lastly, which is kind of the one you have to be the most careful about, is bringing in tenants that are new to market from out of market. Particularly being in a New Yorker, as in being a New Yorker, you don't want to just like you know stuff through national tenants that you think are going to be successful in these markets. You don't want to force feed somebody from Kansas City, some some New York operator that you think is is as good as it gets. So we've done that selectively and really thoughtfully here in Nashville. We brought two hands uh, is a New York, Austin, all day cafe, Australian all day cafe that serves you, you know, the avocado toasts and the breakfast bowl and the matcha lattes. And you know, that need was here. The demand was here. It was undersupplied in Nashville. And they were you know, really welcomed with open arms in this market. But you have to be pretty strategic kind of bringing something out of town, particularly to a market that has a lot of, of pride in, in something local. But you know, whether it's, it's working with existing operators, whether it's helping create de novo operations, or whether it's bringing somebody in from out of town, and we kind of aggregate that mix and, and do it in a really thoughtful manner uh, to create these really authentic experiences that help drive community. In a local market, how much time do you spend thinking about your competitors and what they're doing? Probably too much. Yeah, I think there's, there's two schools of thought. There's a lot of folks in this business that put their blinders on and just do their thing. I'm obsessed with information. I'm obsessed with, with knowing what's going on. Probably to my detriment, it's probably a waste of time. That obsession, I think, runs downhill throughout our company, knowing how things are capitalized, who bought it, who, who the lender is, and what the business plan is. You know, I, I think it's really important to understand the supply side of, of, of the business, right? That our competitors are helping create new supply. And we have to understand how we create a value proposition that's separate and distinct from them. And you know, if I don't know the other multifamily buildings being built in Pittsburgh and I'm building one, I don't think I'm doing my job. It actually brings back a funny story. I think one of our early interactions together, maybe it was the second time we spoke, you sent me an email and the email I think was like three words and it had a subject. We had just bought a deal and the subject was like the name of the deal. And the three letter words was, who was your lender? 
or who'd you buy it from? I forget what it was, but that was it. Just nothing else. Three words. And then I called you. I'm like, hi, hello. How are you? <laughs> Have you learned anything from it? So like in Nashville, I guess AJ Capital is kind of playing in some similar markets that, that you're in or micro neighborhoods, whether it's them or someone else. Have you learned anything from your competitors? or peers that have like kind of shifted the way how you do something? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have tremendous respect for groups like Jamestown or AJ Capital or Turnbridge, who, who, who did an amazing job in, uh, in Music Lane in Austin. You know, we, we are constantly looking at projects around the country and taking note of, of what our peers have done successfully and trying to emulate them. And, you know, understanding what they do and why and, and how or if the economics work is something, you know, that's really important to helping us formulate our vision. Similar to you, this is kind of like a personal question, but I'm guilty of this all the time. I constantly allow, I'll look up people like some of the groups you mentioned. I'm like, who's the CEO of that company? How old is he? What have they done? And I'm like comparing myself and where I am in my career versus others. How, how do you do that in the context of knowing that real estate is a long-term game and people get places at different times. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, like I don't think of these people as our competitors. They're our peers. You know, there is a lot of real estate to go along and there's a lot of people developing hotels in the same markets that you are. And, you know, while you are in some way competitive, you guys are also, you know, peers that are, that, that there's enough to go around. Right. And there's a lot more opportunity created by working collaboratively than competitively. It's like your own personal struggle with success and your career goals in the context of everyone else in the business that we're in. And that's of our similar generation. I just put my head down and I do what I love to do. I, I'm not, I am constantly looking around at other projects and how people are creating success. And, you know, I'm constantly studying and, you know, what I think of as smarter, intelligent people that are putting on great trades or have really thoughtful strategies, but I'm not necessarily comparing myself to them. I'm just trying to do what I love to do every day. And, and I think, you know, success isn't something I like seek. Wealth isn't something I necessarily seek. I think success and wealth are rewards for doing a good job and creating a lot of value. And I just feel really fortunate that I get to wake up every day with an amazing team, do something I love, hopefully be pretty damn good at it. And if we're good at it, those benefits will come. I look at peers in the business more to learn from than to like compare to. You send me this book on one Hanover Square. I saw the deck and I'm like, I want to have an office in this place. This is like the coolest thing. What is it? And Tell me how it's impacting your company and what you're doing with it because it got me excited and I just saw a picture. Yeah, no, that's really kind of you. It's a, it's a very special home. We, we got a call from a, a friend early in the pandemic saying, hey, this club, India House, is, you know, has fallen on some tough times and uh, needs to sell their building and needs to do it quickly. And we love to move quickly. Uh, the broker said, hey, you know, can you put together a bid to, to close on this in a week? And I said, absolutely. So we rolled up our sleeves and, and started sorting through this building. It's this 
gorgeous, historic, early 1800s, 35,000 square foot townhouse in the middle of the financial district on Hanover Square. It sits adjacent to Stone Street, which was the first paved street in New York City. Tremendous amounts of history there. It sits in front of, of Hanover Square, which is uh, this really nice park, green space, open air. You know, financial district is, is often you know, walls of buildings, and this is this you know, really nice, iconic, big open space. Uh, Harry Steakhouse, which is this you know, also iconic uh, institution in the financial district, uh, sits at our basement level and is just an amazing amenity. And we took this 35,000 square foot building and we completely gut renovated it and turned it into a really special, modern, creative office for small and mid-sized companies. On the ground floor, we really leaned into a hospitality and amenity-oriented model, uh, built an amazing tenant lounge with a bar and you know, took a lot of elements we learned from, from, from co-working. This is certainly not co-working, but we, we wanted some of those elements that, that are fun and nice. So, you know, there's, there's beer on tap, there's liquor lockers, there's cold brew on tap, there's a coffee station and, and a really nice like kind of hotel lobby on the ground floor. And that's shared and that's everybody's amenity. On the other side of the ground floor, there's a conferencing center. So there's about a, a half dozen different sized conference rooms and different styles, whether it's couches or, or tables or conference tables. And I think that just from an efficiency perspective is, is something that the tenants want and need, but don't necessarily need all the time in their space and makes a lot of sense to share. And then upstairs, we just created really special boutique offices and we're creating a, a nice ecosystem there of like-minded companies. But for us, intangibly, it's been a really phenomenal home for our company to help continue to cultivate our culture and our identity as a firm. It's been great for, for company culture. It's been uh, tremendous for hiring and it's been you know, great for investors and, and relationship building, but it's just a home that we can be proud of. And I think, you know, particularly in New York City, when you're like a, let's say a, a two to 10,000 square foot tenant, it's hard to have presence and something that you know, feels really special at that size and that scale. Usually you're a, a, a very small component of a very large class A building. And I think we've been able to kind of turn that on its head and, and create a, a really unique and special space for a, a 25 person team in New York and have done so for our tenants in the building as well, who can range from say five to 50 folks. So is the concept departing from co-working because the spaces are larger, but it's taking like the best hospitality ideas from co-working, but it's designed for the 2000 to 8,000 square foot user or something like that? Yeah, no, I think one Hanover creates a, a, really high quality amenitized hospitality oriented building for smaller users and gives them tremendous presence and identity. Whereas they could kind of get lost in the sauce in a larger building that has those amenities and the, the buildings that are going to give them that kind of presence are probably going to be of a lower quality. Is this a brand you want to roll out in some of your other markets? No, no definitely. you're going to keep it, just keep it just for you guys. It's one Hanover Square. That's why it's called One Hanover. It could be a great brand. I'm telling you. I, I it's like I need one down here in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> yeah. No. One thing I, I'd love to touch on a little bit is just human capital, and I think you know that's that's one thing we've taken so much pride on as a company and as a team. We have an amazing group of like-minded, hardworking, passionate folks that love what they do. You know, I always say we. We live to work. We don't work to live here. Like everybody 
comes to work and is really excited about what they're working on is extraordinarily thoughtful and intentional. And we've just cultivated a tremendous group of people. And I think that's, that's one thing that's really set our team apart. What have you learned about cultivating that group across multiple different offices? Like what's been challenging about that and what's worked and what hasn't? No, it's, it really just comes down to, to bringing on the right people, people that are self-motivated and excited to learn and who naturally uh, rise to the occasion and challenges and, and really love working hard and who don't need you know, day-to-day supervision to execute you know, on their work product. You know, we stay deeply in touch with our team on a constant minute-by-minute basis. I think you know, COVID helped expose us all to Teams and Zoom and allow us to have you know, really high levels of connectivity, even if we're not in the same place. And we have, we've established kind of you know, weekly, monthly, regular rituals that allow our team to stay you know, hyper-interconnected. Can you talk about those some more? What, what are the rituals that you do? We have a weekly team meeting every Tuesday morning. We have asset management touch bases with our, our team leaders every Monday. Every quarter, we have a quarterly deal review on every single transaction. Twice a year, we have large corporate events where every office gets together. We have two holiday parties, one in Nashville, one in New York. I like it. One tonight in Nashville. But you know, we we take a lot of pride in in creating a a culture here. You know, we we love what we do. We work really hard, but we you know try and make sure everybody has fun doing it and is continuing to learn and challenge themselves and, and grow as individuals. You know, one thing that we we focus on when we hire here is is really untapped potential. So we like bringing on talented folks that are capable of more and unclipping their wings and letting them go. And we've, you know, experienced that across the ranks here at Somera, taking, you know, younger talent that might be in a box or siloed or suppressed by a senior manager and saying, you know what, here's a great opportunity. Run with it, see what you're capable of and uh, trial by fire, right? You know, I think the first couple months at at Somera Road can be pretty challenging for folks hitting the ground running and, you know, really just being unleashed. But I think, you know, for, for people that are self-motivated, it's a phenomenal place to work and, and learn. I, you know, I can't tell you how often I hear from a new, you know, junior hire that, you know, they've learned more in three months at Samara Road than they did in the you know, first three years of their career. And, you know, I love hearing that and, and take a lot of pride in providing that environment for people to, to grow as professionals. Do you convey that as part of your recruiting process? Because I'm sure you're competing against people with, you know, much bigger balance sheets, maybe a bigger name. Is that a really integral part to how you hire? Yeah, I think, you know, it's providing people an opportunity to have significantly more responsibility than they would in like a hyper institutional model. Having a lot more autonomy, I think is something that's really attractive to a lot of folks today. And that's something we, we definitely explain to folks when they come on. But we certainly make them aware that it's not easy. Uh, there's, there's no hiding. This is a, a, a very transparent and flat organization. Everybody is uh, fulfilling an essential role. And everybody is, is adding tremendous value to the team. There's nobody you know, over there in the corner that's you know, surfing the web every day. With all these projects, I mean, this may seem like a dumb question, but how do you figure out if something's going wrong? 
Like, what? Wh- how, how do you know? Maybe it's a dumb question. But you're talking to people all the time, and I'm curious. Like, you're in all these different markets. I want to know how you keep the pulse on whether your goals are being met and returns are where you want them to be or milestones are being achieved. Yeah, I mean, we have. I, I certainly can't be in 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 all of these markets at the same time. You know, we have a hundred plus investments in. Uh, 70 some odd markets around the country. We're actively focused in about a dozen markets. We have tremendous senior leadership here. And you know, while while being a flat organization, we do have a lot of kind of vertical responsibility. So we have, I have phenomenal partners and phenomenal senior leaders that are, are constantly overviewing uh, business plan execution, making sure our performers are working and are, are are you know assuring that those checks and balances are there? Let's talk about the industrial net lease space. It was pretty hot. I mean, how do you feel about it? Unpack it. Talk to me about it. No, I I, I absolutely love our our industrial net lease business. That's run by my partner Brian Mansuri. You know, I, I think for a variety of reasons, industrial real estate is is as safe and secure of an income stream as it gets in in our space today. It's a really nice complement to what we do as a business, whether it's on the value add or the development side. I think of our net lease business as kind of our yield focused strategy. And you know what we've been able to do is is effectuate and assemble a phenomenal portfolio of strong credit industrial tenants that have a long vault and are embedded in their respective facilities and created a great you know income stream around them. Where's your company Christmas party night? Let's start there because Nashville is probably the most fun city there is. Are you going to like a rodeo or? No, we we uh, we actually brought Blind Barber. That's a tenant I failed to mention. I don't know if you know Blind Barber. They're, I've heard of them. They're yeah. in Philly. They're in New York, LA, across the country. They were in Miami at one point. I think one of their partners is Bryce Harper, the baseball player. Really cool tenant. Barbershop in the front and a speakeasy in the back. And you, you go through the barbershop to... Uh, to to get to the bar, barbershop by day, speakeasy or, or cocktail bar by night. We brought them to Nashville, two year journey with their team, finding them the right space and bringing them into our project. And uh, to go full circle, our, our holiday party will be there at our project with our tenant tonight. And excited to support them. Where do you get inspiration from for these like place making projects? Is it from your travels? Is it from eating? Travel, day to day life. You know, I I love. I love exploring various cities and learning kind of what's cool and what's happening, whether it's restaurants or retailers. And I love kind of following those trends and experiencing those things in the real world. And, you know, I, I think my, I probably drive a lot of my team crazy with how much I email them on a Saturday or a Sunday when I'm out with my family and I see something and I experience something. I'm like, this is a really good idea, or this is the kind of tenant that we should bring to this project. Let's go back to the industrial net lease business. So, our competitive advantage in that space, I think, is you know, one, we are we have a, a deep credit background and we have a deep debt capital markets background. Uh, so Amit Patel oversees our debt capital markets and our CMBS trading operation. Uh, Brian Mansuri oversees our, our, our industrial net lease business as a whole. What the net lease business allows us to marry is our ability to underwrite credit, our ability to uh, strategically capitalize projects from a debt and equity perspective. Our ability to understand real estate across across the country from a geographic perspective, and really marry all of that together. 
to create a, a stable income stream and a yield focused platform. For that business, are there certain like market characteristics that are more interesting to you than others, or are you more so focused on the yield and you'll go to whatever market presents that yield? It's a it's a combination of, of components. We're, we're looking for, you know, I, I'd say it's a, it's a combination of components. We're, we're largely just looking for, you know, sticky tenancy, creditworthy tenants that are embedded that uh, aren't going anywhere. We're looking to own those assets below replacement costs. We're looking to for leases that that are below market leases. We're looking for tenants that have invested a lot in their space that have a workforce that is captive in that space. And yeah, I mean, we're really just assessing the, the credit worthiness of the underlying company and how embedded that tenant is in, in the building. What does the next five years at Samara look like and what are your goals? You know, I, I think our goal as a firm is to continue executing on the projects that we have and to find new and creative ways to, to, to create value in commercial real estate and to continue growing and challenging ourselves. You know, we, have learned so much since inception. We've uh, grown with such you know tremendous people, and I want to keep doing that. And I want to continue to to learn, continue to grow, continue to do it with people I, I, I like working with every day, and I you know I, I want to have fun doing it. And uh, I think you know myself and our team are fortunate enough to to do that right now. Yeah, you know, constantly challenging ourselves to to learn about new verticals and learn new spaces, and never get bored. What about this? Tell me about your best deal that you've done. And you can define that however you like it. So the best deal we've ever done, I would say, or a deal that I love, is a, a deal we did in Rockford, Illinois, called Love's Park. I think it was called Schneider Electric at one point. It was a distressed CMBS deal, I think like a 20-some-odd million dollar loan that had gone REO a rather hideous 550,000 square foot industrial facility with some office in the middle of nowhere. It was REO, uh, it was going to auction, and my team didn't want to touch it. But I saw something in there that I really liked, and it was a it's like 135,000 square foot lease to General Electric Aviation, GE Aviation. And we actually knew GE Aviation because uh, we had done a deal with them in Jacksonville, Florida. And so we had a relationship with the tenant and I called up one of the real estate managers there who I worked with. And I, I, you know, I very quickly got an understanding that they needed this space and the space was mission critical to their business. They make a helicopter component out of that facility. So knowing that and understanding the company and understanding its mission criticality to their business and understanding the amount of investment that we had in there, I felt really comfortable that they were pretty sticky. Anyways, uh, we bought this 550,000 square foot facility in the middle of nowhere that was, I want to say, about 40% or less occupied for $6 a foot for about three and change million dollars. And you know, it was a very complicated, dated asset that had a bunch of pieces kind of bolted onto it. But we acquired it for three and change million. We subsequently got a 15-year extension done with General Electric on an expansion to about 200,000 square feet. Working with our team here, we were able to lease it to about 85% occupancy and grow NOI to about $1.5 million. And just you know, a phenomenal trade, cash out refinancing, and an asset that 
I think will own for a very long time to come. But, you know, what I love about that is like, you know, you can create value anywhere. It just comes down to basis and value proposition, you know, whether you are able to uh, drive leasing velocity and sell a product as in space to a, a tenant, you know, at the right price. So we, we just take a lot of pride in basis, making sure we own our assets at a, at a value where we can uh, create a value proposition to a tenant that's attractive. And it turns out in uh, Rockford, Illinois, if you own your asset at the right price, there's certainly demand for industrial, as we saw there. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. I'm excited to hear your answer. What is your favorite hotel? I have three favorites. Can I give you that? Give me all three. Uh, my three. You know, I I travel every week. I'm going to stay domestic, and I, I love experiencing new hotels. You know, one thing I I I I, I push throughout the company is you know, we never stay in the same hotel twice when we're in a market. I think it's a really important way to learn a new market, uh, not getting in a repetition. You know, always trying to experience as many neighborhoods as possible um, and as many places as possible. Three favorite hotels right now that come to mind. First off, in, in, in our home, my hometown of New York, I absolutely love the, the Pendry Manhattan West. I think it's a tremendous asset. I think Michael and Alan Firstman and the, the Montage team did an amazing job there. They worked with um, the Stillman's Quality Restaurant Group and, and did an amazing job with Zuzu's. And uh, from an interior design perspective, I, I just think it, it really hit the mark. And, Believe it or not, it's the number one rated asset on uh, hotel on TripAdvisor in all of New York City. So love that hotel and, and love the experiences I've had there. Second, I uh, contradict my rule with regards to Kansas City. Now, I have been there you know, 75 some odd times, so I've stayed in, in every single hotel in the market. But the one I always go back to is the Crossroads Hotel, which is owned by our friends at the, the Apparent Group out of Chicago. They've done just an amazing job of creating kind of the heart and soul of the Crossroads District and a really exciting lobby vibe that's kind of like a hearth in the middle of that neighborhood. And then lastly, I, I really enjoy the proper in Austin. I think that's a, a phenomenal asset that really hits the mark and was the perfect hotel and the perfect location at the right time for that city and is you know, a really enjoyable place to stay. What's amazing about that hotel is the food and beverage volume that they do. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I, you know, Liz Lampert and Larry McGuire partnered to to execute the F and B strategy there. I talked to and, and know uh, those two pretty well. They, they've done an uh, amazing job there, and I have a lot of respect for what they've been able to build throughout their careers. And I, I think the the partnership there was really well put together, and was a, was a great team that that executed phenomenally well together. The other thing that's interesting about that hotel is they gave it a soul and a sense of place. And they did it in a new building without it feeling like a new building on the inside, which is very hard to do. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Of course, Mike. Happy to. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwerzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. 